Thank you. Thank you, Sarah and Warren. Not on. Good morning, UBC. Um, if you want to go ahead and start turning to Genesis 3, that's where we're going to be this morning, and I will get us started. As you may notice, I'm not Jeremiah Smith, um, and I have two, uh, two words related to that. One, I am so grateful to be back with you all this morning, um, and two, I just wanted to comfort you all that the preaching team has not been reduced to just Sam. Um, there are a group of us who get to cover for Jeremiah when he's out, and we didn't think that it was fair to ask Warren to both lead worship this morning and then get up and preach. Um, so I'm with you again this morning. If you've been with us over the last several weeks and going on a few months now, um, we have been in a series on identity, courageous identity being made in the, there we go, being made in the image of God. And we pivoted from looking specifically at how the image of God is impacted by various pieces of our world, things that we struggle with as we understand who we are in Christ, who we're supposed to be in the world, and have transitioned to how did we end up here? Starting in Genesis 1, working through creation, understanding how God made the world, seeing ourselves in light of how he made us, who we're supposed to be now. And last week, we took a hard pivot from the goodness of the garden into the fall. We saw Adam and Eve at the word of the serpent reach for the fruit of the tree and eat and decide for themselves that they know better than what God has for them. And many times, as we're looking at the gospel story, we take the fall and then move directly to the resurrection and miss out some really wonderful pieces that take place in between because sitting in these couple of verses, 14 through 24, are a little uncomfortable. And so because we already know how the story is going to end, we tend to just rush to it. And so where I'd like us to challenge ourselves and each other this morning is to sit in the passage of Genesis 3 that's typically referred to as the curse and see what goodness, we just sang of the goodness of God, what goodness in God's words as he pronounces judgment on his people and his world, can we take from it so that we can really prepare our hearts for what Jeremiah and God through his word has, us, has for us over the next several weeks where we see Jesus as the perfect answer to where we have found ourselves. So a little bit of discomfort this morning that brings incredible joy, um, hopefully by the end of the message and over the next several weeks. And so um, if you will join me, we're going to pray over, over the service and, and God's word, um, and then we'll get going. Dear God, you are good, and you have good for us, and we pray that you would prepare our hearts, um, even as we've come into this place, to see how the results of the choices we have made, the, the difficulty that we have brought into the world as a result of sin, um, has not changed your disposition towards us, and that we can leave with the comfort of knowing that you are still, God, still a God who pursues us, um, even in our shame. Um, we pray that that promise would be um, foundational and uplifting for us as we head into our week. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't know how many of you know this, um, but all across the country, um, pretty much every night of the week, there are people gathered around tables playing games. Um, my wife and I think a whole lot about games, and she's recently written quite a bit on how we understand God in light of the games that we play. Um, and one type of game in particular doesn't have a rule book associated with it. There's not even really a board that you play with. 
groups of people gather around and tell stories with one another um, in a shared world with characters that they've created um, as an opportunity to just see how things play out. Now, because you don't have a rule book in this game, there tends to be someone at the table who functions as a referee. Um, in our group, that's me. Um, I sit behind a screen and as my friends every Friday night tell me what decisions they're going to make, they occasionally look to me behind the screen and say, so what happens next? Because they're just characters in the world, playing in a world that they don't own or create, they make choices and then look to me and say, so what does that mean for me in the world that I live in? And I have to make a judgment. And once they've acted, I bring resolution to the choices that they've made in the world that they live in. Now, sometimes they make bad choices. Um, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have perfect information. Sometimes they're just being a little silly. But no matter what, the choices that they've made are permanent and everlasting. The next choices that they make come in consequence to the ones that they've made prior. And I just pronounce what has happened. And so as we look at Genesis 3, usually referred to as the curse, I would like us to shift our minds more towards God being with his people and just telling them what's happening now as a result of your choices. Because this is already a very heavy passage, and it's very easy for us to read more anger, more judgment, more frustration from our Father into the text than the real pieces that are already there. And if we frame our minds more around Adam, Eve, the serpent has made choices, and God is now telling them, because of the choices you've made, this is how the world works now. It may not be how the world works forever, but it is how it works now. And as we read through these passages, maybe it'll lift some of the heaviness that comes from 10 very difficult verses. And so we're going to read the entire passage, we're going to walk through them quickly, and then leave with an understanding of who are we now in light of the fall. Verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On, the belly you shall go, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat this bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has come to be like us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hands and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We see, as a result of the choices that Eve and then Adam made to eat the fruit, to do the thing that God told them not to do, there is distance 
that comes as consequence, both in terms of time, they are no longer with him in terms of intimacy in the garden, and everlasting distance with death coming into the world as a result of their choices. But that's just what God promised from the beginning. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But as we've all experienced, there's always more to sin than the choices, or the, the, than the results that we think are going to happen. We make a choice to sin. We see possible consequences, but the ripple effect of that choice moves out into creation. And from Adam and Eve's perspective, and the serpent's, their choices have everlasting ramifications um, to varying degrees. So we're going to look at a couple of those things. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have heard this text actually taught on as I was doing work to get ready for this week. It's astounding how many people reference this text in other sermons, but don't actually sit down and teach what's in it. And so it's very easy for us to read these verses and hear the things um, that we kind of piece together as we go. So we're going to do a little bit of teaching and a little bit of application, and at the end, hopefully leave, as I said, with um, a sense of hope in who we actually are. So let's start in 14 through 16 and look at the serpent. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this in your text, but anytime Yahweh is used, typically in the Old Testament, it's brought forward in the English as Lord God. Jeremiah has uh, indicated when the serpent was tempting Eve just a couple of verses before, he stripped out the Lord part and just gave us Elohim. As he's talking to Eve, he adjusts how he talks about God in order to get her to adjust her perspective in who God is. But when God speaks, there is no more of just this Elohim language. The Lord God is back at the beginning of verse 14, and he is pronouncing final judgment on the serpent. I also hope you heard that there is a difference in the way that God talks to the serpent versus his children. We're going to point out a couple of those as we go. But the first one is right out the gate. Cursed are you because you have done this above all the livestock. Now, God is speaking poetically here, and it's because he wants to trigger your ears. He wants you to be listening, listening for things that have been said prior. How was the serpent described previously? Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than all the livestock on the face of the earth. And in just 14 verses, because of what he has led Adam and Eve to do, he has gone from the most crafty of all the livestock to cursed. His essential nature from this point forward is going to be changed because of what he led God's children to do. He is no longer the most crafty of the livestock. He is now cursed. And more than that, on your belly you shall go and eat dust the rest of your life. Now, this is not a fairy story on how snakes lost their legs. Um, this is not telling us primarily snakes used to crawl around with feet, and now because of what he's done, he's going to be on his belly. No, what it's communicating to us is when you do things that cause God's people to turn from what he said, your station from this point forward is public humiliation. Eating dust, even in our culture, um, is a phrase that we use for when people are humiliated or when they get theirs. And so the serpent, as a result of what he led Adam and Eve to do, is going to crawl on his belly for the remainder of his days. He will be publicly humiliated above all the livestock because of these choices. And it's really interesting 
because when we look at the serpent, not just in Genesis 3, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see a progression of God's people from being far from God, slowly moving towards him through the law and then the promise of the Messiah. The station of the serpent never changes. In Isaiah 65, 25, the prophet gives us a vision of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. You're familiar with this passage, the lion lays down with the lamb, the children play with the serpents, the wolf and the cub, things like that. And it says, so interestingly, and the snake will eat the dust of the ground. So from this point through the new creation, because of what the serpent has done, his place is going to be one of public and everlasting humiliation. Now, this is interesting for me because the serpent is not given an opportunity to repent when God confronts them in just a couple of verses before that we covered last week. And the serpent is also cursed first as a result of what he's done. And God is perfectly justified in doing this. And it kind of sets us up to think once he starts talking to Eve and Adam who actually commit the sin against him, we should expect additional harsh judgment. But we don't. This is why skipping to the end can be difficult when we're reading our texts and can, we can miss out on some juice that the Holy Spirit has given us in the text because we don't see that. We see when we transition to what happens with Adam and Eve, there is a lightness on their sentence that does not come up with the serpents. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, in verse 15, we pick back up after crawling around on the dust, and we see enmity. There's going to be conflict between you, serpent, and your offspring, and the offspring of the woman. Now, um, in the translation that I read from, you hear, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. For some of you, your translations may bring that bruise across in two different ways. Um, there are two other verbs that come through as a way of delineating um, maybe that there's a member of this conflict who is going to have the upper hand. We read that into the text because we know where it's going. The drama of Genesis 3.15 is that there is nothing in the grammar that says this is who's going to win. We don't know at the end of 3.15 in the conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, who is going to come out victorious? The author is prompting that question in us. The, the structure of the story is prepping us to ask, well, who's going to win this cosmic fight that's going to be taking place between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman as a result of man's sin? That's how serious our sin was, is that the author wants us to understand there is going to be conflict as a result of it, and there is not a guaranteed victor at this moment. There is nothing that says this is how we know it's going to win. And so we lean in. We lean into the story to see, God, you have created this world. You have said it's going to be good. How are you going to bring about victory in light of what your children have done? And so there's not just a single conflict that's going to take place. It's not just going to be the seed of the serpent and then Cain in chapter 4, um, who represents the seed of the woman. But there's going to be ongoing two groups of people throughout history, 
um, who fall into these two camps. And I think that this is our first real tangent um, on identity of who are we going to be. When we see that it is possible to fit into two groups, the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, um, if that conflict is going to be in perpetuity, what group are we in? And it's very easy for me to sit in a church building and not think too much about what group I'm in because I feel like my heart belongs to God. Like, I feel like I'm pretty confident that I am his. But look at the characteristics of who the serpent and his offspring have been. Do you see yourself as one of God's people but are constantly questioning God's character and leading others to do the same? Have you been near the things of God but still find um, the things that he promises or attempts to be more like God, more alluring than relationship with him? Where are we seeking our own glory at the expense of what God is doing in our midst? And so it is very easy without careful introspection to find ourselves behaving more like the offspring of the serpent than we would like to admit, where the things that God has promised, we question, or we take them for ourselves, or we encourage other people to do likewise, without the nearness that comes from relationship with God and the transformation that's supposed to come as a result of it. And this is about as heavy as it gets, because as we've seen in this text and the one prior, if we choose to engage in behavior that leads others to see the things of God as either questionably good or as attainable for themselves, the only future we have is public humiliation and enmity with God's people. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you've been around God for a while, you've been around his people for a while, and you're just not sure what this thing is that's keeping you from finding peace amongst God's people, where are you seeing God's promises as something other than good, or maybe encouraging other people to do likewise? It's a hard question, but it's one worth asking. So then we proceed to what takes place with the woman. Um, and our ears, once again, should perk up. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. You'll notice that there's a sentence missing. He does not say, cursed are you. He does not look at the woman and say, your pain and childbearing is going to be a curse that I place upon you, a change in who you are. However, he does say that I am going to allow you, by my grace, to continue engaging in the blessing that I set forth, be fruitful and multiply, hold dominion over the earth. That role that we were given was meant to be a blessing, joining with God in his creation. But instead of just being a blessing, it is going to bring something that brings pain into your life. Now, it comes across as childbearing here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on some of these words because I'm not Jeremiah, and he's going to be here for Theology Matters on Wednesday, hopefully, and you can ask him those questions then. Um, what I will say here is that the grammar of this is very, very interesting, and it's more interesting than just the word childbearing. Um, I'm a word nerd. Please forgive me. Um, what brings across childbearing here is not just the moment that the child is born. From conception through the life of that child, there will be pain as a result of the choices that you've engaged in. 
And the really interesting thing about pain here is that it's not talking about physical anguish. It is talking about, more literally, a heavy anxiety, a weightiness, a fear that will bring you the stomach burbles over the lifetime of your child from the moment of conception through their lifetime or yours. And it's so interesting to me because this is kind of predictable. Eve has said, I want to be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to grasp the things of God for myself. And now she is cursed with carrying the weight of what it's like to try and be God in the process of childbearing from conception to the end. Every parent knows our limitations in the life of a child. From the time that they are born, we feel deep in our souls we are not enough to keep them from the world, to keep them from themselves, to keep them from the dangers that exist both in them and what they'll experience in community. This is part of that curse. It is because you have sought to say the things of God are for yourself, you will, for the life of the child, have a weighty anxiety. Um, in pain, there's a pain word again, you will bring forth children. We're going to pick up this theme of weighty anxiety again when we get to the man, um, because it's, it's there too. Um, the next verse, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you, is translated differently in basically every English translation that comes across, because the word desire there is only used three times in the Old Testament, and in every instance is unhelpful. So when we look at what's actually happening in this verse, it is very easy to take the framework that you have for the rest of the text and say that's what this verse means. What I am most comfortable this morning telling you that it means is that as a result of the fall, in your most intimate relationships, you are going to have access to the nastiest parts of yourself as you engage with those nearby, and you will be tempted to do it in every instance. So for both the man and the woman, in your marriage relationships, as you seek to relate to one another, Sin is always going to be a ready, available, and willing option as you choose to interact with each other. What that type of sin and nastiness is, it's better to have that conversation maybe over coffee than in a lecture style. But just know that if in relationship you find, God said that this helper is supposed to be suitable for me, we're supposed to be co-rulers of God's creation, this should be something that brings blessing to both us and to the world, and yet I can't find out, I can't figure out how that's supposed to work. There's friction as we try and be God's blessing to the world. That is a part of God's pronouncement as a result of sin. Sin takes the things that are meant to be a vehicle for his grace to the world and makes them challenging. Not impossible. God doesn't say you no longer to get to be a part of dominion, you no longer get to be a part of childbearing, but the process by which you engage in those are going to be forever touched by the effects of sin, the egg in the water from earlier. And so he quickly pivots, doesn't have a whole lot to say to the woman here, to Adam, and in the section for Adam in 17 through 19, we get both a curse on the ground as a result of Adam's, um, as a result of Adam's choice, um, and the results of what's going to happen to him himself. Um, and it's interesting the way he grounds this curse um, in verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. It is not simply that he has taken and eaten a piece of fruit. God reiterates in each one of these cursings, it is because you have reached out and decided to be God for yourself in this way. You have decided that you want to be the power behind how things work in the world. And so because you want to be the power behind how things work in the world, the ground is no longer going to bear fruit in every season. You no longer are going to have access to a garden where the trees just grow fruit as a result of your work. The ground is going to grow thistles and thorns, not like it never did before, but as a result of your choices, you are going to have to fight the dirt that you came from for your sustenance. If you think you can do it, if you think you can be God for yourself, go ahead and try. You are no longer going to have access to a garden where your needs are provided for. You are going to have to hope that this season, the wheat that you grow is going to bring forth fruitful ears. You will get to grind it and make bread. And he says, in painful toil, you will work the ground until you return to it. That painful toil is the exact same phrasing he gives to the woman just a couple of verses back. It is not just, it is very difficult to grow food, which I have tried a little bit, but I hear it is very difficult to grow food, especially when you've had droughts like we've had the last several years. But you are going to live in a weighty anxiousness every year that the food that you need to survive, something that was just a given up till now, is going to grow as a result of your work. And you're going to carry that with you until you return to the dust that you come from. You want to be like God? You want to say, I am like God, knowing good and evil? Make the ground bear fruit. Try. And see what weighty anxiousness comes as a result of trying to take on yourself the things that are naturally God's. Um, I can't say to the ground, bear fruit. I can't say to the dust, bring forth life. I can't remove a piece of a living person and make it a suitable helper. But in my grasping for the fruit, that is what I am saying to God. The things that only you can do, I want for myself because I want your power without relationship. I want to be you in the world without having to come under your authority. I want to do what you do um, without being your son. And when you start thinking through the passage that way, there isn't these thousand-year gaps between where we live now and what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning. We start seeing patterns of thinking and behavior that we very easily slip into. And as much as we talk about our identity being something that we are, the way our identity works itself out in the world is by the choices that we make. And we can say we are one thing every day at the top of our lungs, but when we look at our choices, if they are constant grasping at the things that God does without wanting relationship with him, we have to ask who we are and what we're living under. And what the text makes pretty clear up to this point is that if you're going to make choices that reach for the things of God, without relationship with him, anxious, heavy toil is going to be your lot. 
And like Martha said earlier, it would be very, very heavy to just end us here, because this is kind of where the text leaves us. In 20 through 24, we see Adam names his wife Eve. There are some who see this as a step of faith, that even though God has pronounced judgment over the whole earth, that death has been brought into the world um, as a result of Adam's sin, the dust you will return, um, that he names Eve out of hope in, in who she's going to be. We don't know that for sure. Um, God, very lovingly, as he's sending his children out of the garden, does not leave them in the shame that they brought upon themselves. He doesn't just leave them with the fig leaves that they've sown for themselves. He creates garments for them. And so in a moment of exceeding grace, where they have violated the nature of their relationship, he actually takes animals, clothes the nakedness that they brought upon themselves, and sends them out east of Eden. But then he sends them out. They aren't cursed individually, but their choices are still going to lead to a disconnect in their relationship with their creator, and they are now banished from the garden. If there was any question about the nature of why God exiles his people, um, and you think that I might be harping on it a little too hard, um, we have no question left in verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reached out his hand and also take of the tree of life and live forever, he is banished from the garden. Now, this is interesting because we don't actually know if the man and the woman would have lived forever um, if they had not sinned. We know that there's the capacity for them to because they could eat of the tree of life. That's the issue here. They could live forever in this state as a result of what they've chosen to do. You eat the tree of life, you continue to live. And God says, in, a, in one of his last acts of grace in this chapter, instead of allowing you to live forever in this state, I am going to remove access from the tree of life so that the death that you will experience as a result of your choices may just be a temporary one. That the death you experience in this life while determinative and, and finite um, does not have to be the final thing that happens to you as it would be if he allowed them to continue to eat of the tree of life. So he removes them from that access, but he also removes them from intimacy with him. We see both in this chapter and moving through the rest of the Old Testament, to move east is to move away from blessing. Um, it starts here and then we see it as, as they move into exile, um, but going east of Eden in this text is not just leaving the place of blessing, but moving away from God and, and where his, his blessing lives. And then he places the cherubim and the flaming sword in front of the way to prevent them from ever returning by this way. And so as we end chapter 3, we end with the garden behind us. Whatever happens next, we are not trying to get back into the garden that we lost. There is something else that God has for us as his people that will play out over the course of the next many chapters. How that happens, why that happens, and why it happens the way that it does is going to be the subject of what Jeremiah covers over the next several weeks. But I want to leave us today with the incredible truth that something happens. So, as God's people, Adam and Eve, are sent from the garden, they are sent with their identities firmly cemented as 
the far-off ones. What they have done and the choices that they have made, the ramifications of it are whoever else they are, they are the ones who are now outside of relationship with God. And the reader is wondering, what is God going to do to chase after his people? What's going to happen to the people of God? And the beautiful thing is, is that as we move through the story of redemptive history, we find out that the plan for this moment has been in the mind and heart of God since before the foundation of the world. This moment has not caught God off guard. What happens next with Jesus is not an afterthought as a result of what Adam and Eve do in the garden with the fruit. Jesus is described as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What we see in time happening on a hill in first century Jerusalem is something that happened in the mind of God and in the effects of the world before we ever were. And because of that, we get to look at this moment with anticipatory hope of what is God going to do. And what Jesus did in the life that he lived is not just live some general perfect way of being able to bring us closer to God. Yes, he lived a perfect life. Yes, he died the death that we needed to, we needed to have in the perfect way for us to have access to God. But the promises, the very specific promises that he makes to us in time right now address the effects of the curse perfectly. What does Jesus say in Matthew? Come to me, you who are heavy, weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Find rest for your souls. If the curse, as its effect, brings a weighty anxiousness that causes any participation in the blessings of God in this life to be a drag, to be a friction, to be a burr in our sides, the specific promise of Jesus for you today is rest. The effects of the curse go on. If the Lord tarries, we all will die. But in the fruitful days that we have from this moment until that day that we meet him, Jesus' specific promise is, if you will come back under my authority. See, it's not just rest. It's rest under a yoke. We don't like that. We don't like the idea that for us to get rest, for us to have our burden released, we have to come back under authority. But what brought the curse in the first place is us grasping something that was not ours. And we have the perfect example. The words are perfect in Philippians 2. He did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. We have a perfect example of what it looks like to not reach for the things that we think are ours, but to humbly trust that what God has for us in this life, at this time, is good, and as we experience that, encourage those that we walk alongside to do the same. And so how do we undo the effects of the curse in this life? We submit to the good and gracious plans of God as we figure out how those plans are good and gracious. I don't know what heaviness you're under today, but I know if it's not today, at some point it has felt unbearable, and it's taken someone else whether by the power of the Spirit or just that gentle word at the right time of need to come by you and remind you that God's goodness is going to come true even in this. And so who are we going to be for each other? 
When we ask who we are, are we going to be the kind of people who sit in hopeful expectation of how God is going to bring all of this into a good, true, and beautiful place? Or are we going to sit in that posture of questioning, grasping, and humiliation? And so my challenge for us this morning is in these places where it is hard to trust God, because they're numerous, in these places where we see others struggling to bear up under the weight of the curse that is a part of all of our lives, can we be agents of blessing who help undo on Jesus' behalf in time the works of the curse to make these wearisome, anxious, heavy pieces of our lives light and momentary, to make them less weighty as a result of submitting to the authority of Christ, to see where we're going in the plans that he has for us as something good and beautiful, because then we can ask who we are when we look at our identity and we're trying to figure out who we are. We at least know, if I'm nothing else, I'm his. And when we get to the place that we realize that if we are nothing else, we are his, we are now free to live as he did for others. There's no question about what our mission in this world is, even with the curse in effect. We become agents of his grace in time to a world who desperately wants rest and doesn't know how to find it. And so as we look over the next several weeks into how he made this gloriously true, and in what ways he made this gloriously true, we can leave today knowing that it is true. And if you don't believe that it is, test him. Take the next six days between these times that we get to see each other again and ask the Holy Spirit to make this true in your life. Ask it of him and see what he does as we gather again in the next several weeks to see the glory of who Jesus is as he changes our lives. Let's pray. Dear God, you are good, and the curse has not changed that. Living in a world under the effects of the curse does not change who you are, and as we see in this text, it does not fundamentally change how you see us. You did not leave us as the far-off ones. You sent your Son into the world as a payment for sin in just the right way so that those who were far-off could be brought near. We pray that this week we would celebrate that as we believe it, and if we don't, that we would demand of you, that you would show us how you are good. I pray that you would bring people into our lives who would show us in specific ways how you're moving and what it would take to bring us close again. Let us celebrate today as we leave your goodness um, and be expectant in the week ahead of how you're going to make good on that. In Jesus' name, amen.